This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. On the show today, Mexico. It looks set to vote in a firebrand left-wing populist as their new president over the weekend. One who promises to take the fight to the Donald, Donald Trump. Are US-Mexico relations set to deteriorate further? And later on, I'll be chatting with Peter Hendy, author of Why Australia Slept on the Urgent Need for Economic Reform in This Country. His argument, we're heading for economic disaster if we don't embrace more free market policies to boost productivity. And finally, we'll have a special tribute to one of the world's greatest commentators, Charles Krauthammer. He passed away last week, age 68. I was born in Texas. I lived in Dallas for the first six years of my life. I spoke Spanish, and to this day, my favourite food is Mexican. And yet I have a confession to make. Until this week, I've had really no knowledge of Mexican politics whatsoever. So bear that in mind as you hear our next segment. This Sunday's elections in Mexico could see a historic changing of the guard in the country's leadership. And if the polls are right, and who can really be clear about the polls these days after Trump and Brexit and Malaysia, but if the polls are right, the result could be a further deterioration of the already strained US-Mexico relationship. Now that's because the front runner in the electoral race, some polls say he's leading by 20 percentage points, is Andreas Manuel Lopez Abrador, otherwise known as AMLO. I'll keep calling him AMLO. He's a firebrand populist who's promised to be taking the fight to President Donald Trump. Now, ironically, the two of them, this is AMLO and Trump, they seem to have a few things in common. Both have issued promises to drain the political swamp and both have appealed to a base of voters who dream of seeing the return of industries swept away by the tides of globalisation. So... Is Mexico on the verge of political and social change? Or will AMLO, like so many before him, prove to be a false prophet? Macario Scatino is Professor of Government at the University of Monterey, and he joins me now. Macario, welcome to the program. My pleasure. What's the most important issue for us to understand about this left-wing populist leader who's likely to become your country's leader? Uh, well, Andres Manuel López Obrador uh, was a member of the PRI, which was the hegemonic party in Mexico over the 20th century. He left that party in 1988, but he keep on thinking uh, about the same ideas that uh, led Mexico during that century. So what uh, López Obrador means is a retreat of Mexico back to what we did of uh, the 60s and 70s. And maybe that's why you seem to look at, to López Obrador very similar to Donald Trump, because they are two old people that made their lives uh, around the 60s and 70s, uh, and that's what the idea of the world they have. So they want to get back to that time, and that's why they propose uh, about the same ideas. Yeah, well, of course, uh, Latin America, Central America, South America, it's been home to many populists on the left and on the right. If he becomes Mexico's president, do you see him forging an ideological and political alliance with, say, Cuba and Venezuela? 
I don't think so. I don't think that Lopez Obrador is too close to Cuba and Venezuela, I thought some of his allies are. He is more of the national revolutionary ideals of Mexico, which were the ideals in the 20th century, which is kind of a leftist uh, populist movement. So not really close to Cuba and Venezuela, but yes, very populist. Okay. I read a Washington Post editorial just recently, and it said that if AMLO does indeed win, and, and this stage he looks like he will, then relations between the US and Mexico are likely to deteriorate further because he'll fight Trump on the border wall. He favours renegotiating NAFTA with higher wages for Mexicans. And of course, his policies aim to curtail trade with the US. Do you share that view? I, I'm not really sure. I think that Lopez Obrador doesn't really have an idea of what's happening outside Mexico. He really he don't uh, pay much attention to the foreign world. He's going to oppose Donald Trump on some things, but I don't think that that opposition will be very tough. I think that Lopez Obrador mainly is going to ignore Donald Trump uh, as much as he can. Okay, what about Mexican business? How have they reacted to the prospect of this left-wing populist uh, gaining control? I don't think that they are very happy by now. I think that they will try to reach in over the next uh, weeks and months, trying to find some uh, points of uh, contact. But by this time, I don't think that they are really happy with this election. But uh, anyway, if he has 20 points, 20 percentage points of uh, advantage, it's uh, quite sure that he is going to win on Sunday. And, and to what extent is retribution against businesses, particularly those seen to be corrupt, to what extent is that likely in the new era? I don't think so. I think that he is going to uh, act exactly the same that the PRI over the 20th century acted. That means that they're going to establish liaisons with the business people and uh, lead some of them to have uh, enough space to work. And maybe he's going to hit some others. In, specifically, I think that the mining industry is going to have some uh, strikes over the following months because... Uh, that's the, the most uh, likely industry to receive punches from, from Lopez Obrador. It seems to me your line is that if AMLO wins, nothing will change dramatically in Mexico. Is that, a, is that your argument? Uh, I, well, uh, we may have some changes. I don't think that uh, we are going to have a big change in the immediate uh, future. I think that we're going to see some changes uh, in, in specific areas. For example, he uh, has uh, promised to reduce the wages and uh, salaries of high-level functionaries of the government. He has promised to uh, try to push, uh, again, the agriculture in Mexico, specifically maize uh, I and mean corn. Those things may change, but I don't see in the the near future, a profound change in, in Mexican economy, for example. There's not much margin to do it. I don't think uh, that we're going to have a big change in social and political issues, I mean, in the near future. That means the rest of the year and 2019. Now, I mentioned in my introduction my knowledge of Mexican politics is exceedingly limited, <laughs> but uh, thanks to my excellent producer, um, I do have some sense of uh, your history here. Um, just for our viewers' interests, uh, the institutional Revolutionary Party, this is the PRI, correct me if I'm wrong, yep. that's governed Mexico since 1929, except for the 12 years between 2000 and 2012, correct? Yes, that's correct. Well, why, why have their political fortunes turned so dramatically then? Because this is a party uh, I, apparently famous for yeah. being adaptable and resilient. Why is it different this time? 
Uh, because uh, I think that uh, Mexicans uh, gave uh, the TRI a second chance to rule the, the country over 2012-2018, and uh, this was a very difficult term. They were very corrupt. Uh, we have uh, an increase in violence in Mexico, as you may know. So uh, Mexicans are really tired of uh, PRI. Uh, this party a second chance to be a good government, and they they, they didn't do it. So I, I think that's the reason that most Mexicans think that the corruption in Mexico uh, comes from PRI, so they don't want PRI anymore. Okay. Now, finally, it seems pointless to talk about Mexican politics without mentioning uh, Donald Trump. Um, it does seem surprising, though, from, from our limited uh, knowledge down here in Australia, that Trump really hasn't featured that much in this election. Um, and it would make sense to think that given his antagonism of Mexico, you know, with the wall, NAFTA, and now what's going on at the borders, you'd think that he'd be looming large over this election. Why has this been a non-issue? I think that because uh, there's a consensus in Mexico, we all hate Trump. So there was no point <laughs> right. around it. So it's very easy. <laughs> One issue of bipartisanship in Mexico. <laughs> um, Macario, thanks so much for being on the program. It was my pleasure. Thank you. That was Macario Scatino. He's Professor of Government at the University of Monterey. Well, when you hear about economic reform, what comes to your mind? Market-oriented, productivity-enhancing policies to boost growth? It sort of lacks political sex appeal, doesn't it? <laughs> and yet, the economic reform agenda from 1983 to 2007, this is the quarter century of political leadership under Hawke, Keating, Howard, Costello. That reform agenda ushered in widespread prosperity and sustained growth. Think about it. Deregulating the financial markets, dismantling import protection, cutting income and company taxes, making it easier for employers to hire and fire, monetary policy independence, privatisation, competition policy. All these policies were controversial, but they helped set the scene for 27 years of uninterrupted economic growth. And we forget about it these days, but from the mid-1980s till around 2011, 2012, we experienced the biggest incomes boom since the gold rushes. So by any objective criteria, Australians are better off today than we were before economic reform. Just think how the old Australia, the highly regulated, interventionist, protectionist, inflation-prone country, just think how we would have coped during the global financial crisis a decade ago. However, according to my next guest, there's a great danger Australia will pay a very high price for political timidity in Canberra. Simply put, he argues, our leaders from Rudd and Gillard and even Abbott and Turnbull, they failed to prosecute the next wave of economic reform. Peter Hendy is author of Why Australia Slept, Why Australia is in Danger of Sleepwalking into the Future. He's a former Liberal MP, Minister and Senior Advisor to the Prime Minister. Peter, welcome to Between the Lines. G'day, Tom. Now, you were elected to Parliament in 2013. You lost your New South Wales seat of Eden Monero yes. within a term. Why? <laughs> well, it's not, not to, it's not really related to this, to be honest. I think that uh, seats change their demography, uh, the nature of the citizens who live in the seat, and I think that seat is more moving into the Labor column. 
I think I did a good job to actually win it, to be honest, after Labor had been holding it for a number of years. Mind you, Eden Monero, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a seat that really supports the new government each time since 1972, correct? Well, since 72, but most people don't know that prior to that, for the best part of 30 years, it was a solid Labor seat. So the whole of the Menzies era, it was a Labor seat. Is that a fact? Right. Okay, that's interesting. Well, listen, your argument, though, is that if the government had prosecuted the economic reform more substantially, you may have won your seat? I think that's possible. In my book, I'm not just saying that the government of the day should take this agenda Uh of pro-market economics, but that it is able to implement it too. So actually there's a a significant part of the book which is about parliamentary reform. But you do make it clear that the replacement of Tony Abbott in, what, September 2015 provided the political opportunity of a popular and ideas-based leader who could grab the middle ground. That guy was Malcolm Turnbull. Well, I'm not quite sure. I don't make many comments about um, Tony Abbott in the book, to be honest. I wouldn't actually say... But you did support the coup against him. I did support the change. There's no doubt about that. I think um, there are issues in Tony's office that inevitably meant that there needed to be a change. And it wasn't obviously just me. It was an overwhelming majority of the party. Okay. What about some of the specific policy issues you talk about? Tax reform... How do you sell an increase in the GST to 15% to a sceptical public? Well, that's a good question. And um, ask John Key over in uh, New Zealand, who, who satisfactorily did it only a few years ago mm-hmm. before when he was Prime Minister, and then he subsequently won another election in majority. Yeah, but I interviewed make... John Key about this subject on Sunday Extra a few months ago, mm. and he says that the difference, of course, is that New Zealand doesn't have an upper house. We do have an obstruction of Senate, correct? Indeed, and that's part of what I was mentioning about parliamentary reform mm. and how we how we have a system that lets the Senate block the mandates of governments, Labor or Liberal, when they get elected, they get elected with mandates. You hear it all the time. Scott Morrison was on ABC Radio talking about they had a mandate to implement their tax changes on company tax and that it's being blocked by the Senate. And I could go into this. I think the fact is that the Australian public get jaundiced about our democracy because election after election, they elect a government with a mandate and they can't implement their uh, mandate because the crossbench in the Senate block it. You also talk about workplace relations reform, but surely the verdict of the 2007 election, this is the Howard Rudd election over work choices, the prevailing wisdom is, and this is the view that even Tony Abbott held, that IR reform is dead, buried and cremated. Why on earth would you want to revive it? Well, because the Gillard government went too far back the other way. so But they had strong support from the public, though. Uh, look, you might remember I was the, the chief executive of the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, and I felt myself that work choices went too far and was biting off more than uh, the Howard government could chew, and we found out in the 2007 election that was exactly right. However, what happened when Gillard um, became first the industrial relations minister and then then actually the Prime Minister, she implemented changes that wound back not just what Howard did in Work Choices, not just what Howard did in 1998, uh, which were substantial reforms, but also the 1993 reforms that Paul Keating, Mm. her compadre, had implemented, which were important reforms. She wound all those back. Now, has it been a big problem for Australia to date? 
it's been a problem, but not a big problem. Mm. It becomes a big problem when eventually there is a major downturn or even a recession. Eventually, Australia will face that and then we will see unemployment skyrocket. That's your argument, but uh, and, and you think, correct me if I'm wrong, that the coalition government has succumbed too much to Labor's faith in bigger government, higher tax and more state power, correct? Well, I think that uh, uh, a number of people in coalition uh, parties have, mm. probably too many for my liking. I think the majority is still are, are for smaller government. They'll certainly say that. But um, uh, the fire in the belly to implement that has been diminished quite See, your critics, though, would say, why do we need the pain of economic reform when, all things considered, our economy is still going pretty well? 27 years of uninterrupted growth. We're experiencing a boom in infrastructure, uh, wool, tourism, commodity prices are going back up again. The global economy is on an upswing. Why embark on reform that's difficult to sell in that climate? So there's two things, really. You mentioned a number of things there, but there's basically two. Our terms of trade have been good recently. Um, and secondly, um, there's been a lot of infrastructure spending. Well, that's just government spending money, right? Now, hopefully it's spent the right way on good infrastructure as opposed to white elephants. But let's take it that it's good infrastructure. But that's still government spending. Big government, if you want to put it that way. This, in the past, a lot of it was, was private sector building of roads and whatever. The, sec the first part, terms of trade, we have had a pretty golden era. I think you said something like that earlier. And But we cannot rest on our laurels because it doesn't always last. A history, an economic history shows you there are cycles and they are cycles. And the fact is that Australia's productivity, uh, I know it's a boring term that economists use and I don't know if your listeners are now starting to turn off the dials, <laughs> but productivity is central. And the fact is that Australia's current productivity for the last best part of 10 years has been below trend. And if we don't have strong productivity, get back to where we were to in the 90s and, and early 2000s, we will struggle. My guest is Peter Hendy. He's author of Why Australia Slept. He's a former coalition minister and head of the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. Uh, Peter, many of our listeners will be saying, why should we expect our leaders to prosecute these market-friendly reforms when so many people are weary of, indeed, downright hostile to capitalism? Let's get your reaction to some YouGov polls that the think tank I run, this is the Centre for Independent Studies, we conducted these polls recently. Nearly 60% of Australian millennials, these are young folks aged between 22 and uh, 38, they were born between 1980 and 1996, 60% support socialism and think capitalism has failed and want more government intervention. Yes, well, it's a sad it's a sad indictment, isn't it? And it is a worry. I'm particularly worried about it. So the message of, you know, socialism, well, in one sense, it's that agenda you mentioned before, big government, heavy regulation into the business community. It It has, in my view disastrous impacts down the line. It atrophies an economy, productivity goes down. When people talk about real wage increases and they complain about that, the same people would be complaining about there's not the wage increases aren't large enough. Well, you can't have sustained wage increases without productivity growth. So they, they don't understand. I think, 
uh, you know, I know it's easily said, but the education system has a lot to be answer for. for yeah, but these young people will say to us that it's not just wage stagnation. They feel that they're being priced out of the housing market in Sydney and yeah. Melbourne and that capitalism is to blame. So there are, well, is it capitalism? So the uh, on the housing market, I do actually make a reference to that in, in my book and, and I actually think immigration is a key issue here. I think that if you cannot supply the housing that is needed for the growing population, <laughs> of course housing prices will go up. And that's exactly, it's just a supply and demand equation. And in Sydney and Melbourne in particular, not necessarily, you know, house prices are falling in Perth. Um, they're, they're basically stagnant in Brisbane and Adelaide. Um, they are going up in Hobart. But the fact is that if you uh, are bringing, if we're not setting our immigration task to what the market can bear, the housing market, then we have major housing affordability problems in the major cities. 62%, according to the CISUGov poll, these are 62% of mm. Australian millennials think that, quote, Australian workers are worse off today than they were four decades ago. Well, that's just not actually accurate. Um, uh, the Australian um, population as a whole is, is vastly wealthier and, um, and in fact, um, the, the things they can buy with their money, like, um, you know, uh, IT equipment and stuff like that is cheaper now than it was uh, 10 years ago, five years ago than it was in real 20 terms. years. In yeah. real terms, mm -hmm. the status of their wealth is actually quite significant. I mean, you know, I mean, it's hard to compare between eras. Um, famously, I, I remember reading about how, you know, the, the, the average person in the Western world is in one sense wealthier now than Louis the Fourteenth was all the way back. When you can think of the access to groceries and and the sort of food you can eat at any particular time, and having heated mm. uh, heated palaces and things like that. I mean, the fact is that the 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 wealth of a country like Australia is phenomenal compared to what it has been. My guess is Peter Hendy. Finally, why should this country develop our own nuclear weapons arsenal? Well, I, I raise in the book uh, a major defence uh, debate that's going on. This is an issue related to um, nuclear prol proliferation. Um, it, it's, it's getting to the, the nub of the issue about North Korea, Iran um, and, and proliferation, is that if Australia uh, is faced with um, North Korea, Iran, but then Japan decides to nuclear arm, um, that other countries in the Southeast Asia decide to nuclear arm. The, the Saudi Arabians decide, the UAE, um, Q80s, then um, can we rely forever on the US defence umbrella to protect us and not Well, ourselves? I was going to say, though, don't we have the protection of the US we do, nuclear umbrella? So why even have this debate? The reason is because over the decades, um, uh, there, is, there is an increasing question mark about that. With proliferation, will the Americans um, sacrifice to protect Darwin um, for Los Angeles or something like that? In the past, um, uh, Darwin and other country, other, you know, Brisbane or whatever, haven't necessarily been targets. Mm. But when there is a proliferation with North Korea, for example, and they actually literally say we're targeting Australia, 
then there's question marks. You've been a long-time supporter of our security alliance with the Americans. Are you growing increasingly sceptical in the Trump era? It, fundamentally, no. No, I'm not. I, I, I do have uh, issues with um, some, you know, his use of Twitter and I know a lot of right-wing people, even, you know, conservatives do have concerns about what he does say and things like that. But the fundamentals at this stage have not changed. The alliance is very strong and Australia's alliance um, with the US is the bedrock of our national security. Peter, thanks so much for being on the program today. Thank you. Tom. Peter Hendy, author of Why Australia Slept, Why Australia is in Danger of Sleepwalking into the Future. You know, I'm sometimes asked whom I'd most want to interview. Trump? Putin? Kissinger? Well, for me, the answer is obvious. Charles Krauthammer, the most distinguished and influential American commentator during the past four decades. He was also my favourite columnist. In 1985, he coined the term Reagan Doctrine in Time magazine. In 1990, the unipolar moment in Foreign Affairs magazine. And of course, Bush derangement syndrome in the Washington Post. You know, he'd been writing a column every Friday on the Post's opinion page since December 1984. Now, whatever one's views of Krauthammer, and goodness, I disagree with Charles sometimes, he was widely respected for his brilliant writing style, his sound commentary. He really was a Washington institution. Well, I'll never get the opportunity to interview him because Charles died recently at age 68, but my colleague, Philip Adams, lucky guy, he did get to interview Charles Krauthammer. It was September 2002, a year after the 9-11 terror attacks, six months before the US-led invasion of Iraq and the subject, Bush diplomacy. Listen to the Adams-Krauthammer exchange on RN's Late Night Live. Don't you think, Charles, that uh, things will be playing out a little better and America's traditional allies would be a lot happier if the tone of voice was adjusted. You know, I used to be a psychiatrist, and I left that field because I thought that uh, there were more important things to do in the world. What you're asking here is a little bit of psychoanalysis about it. Well, go on. Put that old hat back on. I foreswore it 25 years ago, and I promised myself I'd never practice again. Look, international relations is not social work, and it's not psychotherapy. We are in an emergency. A year ago, 3,000 Americans died in one day in a sudden, unexpected attack. And we know that, that there are people out there planning the next September 11th. And we know there are weapons of mass destruction that are loose in the world and that may be used against us. This is not a time in which we have to calibrate foreign policy to satisfy the warm and the fuzziness of people around the world. Right now, we are in a very serious war situation. Of course, we would like to placate, consult with, in some ways, make our allies more comfortable. But they have demonstrated an unwillingness in many situations to act decisively. We cannot wait for them. The classic example, of course, is Iraq. The UN did absolutely nothing. The catalog of resolutions cited by the president is a catalog of resolutions made and ignored by Europe and the rest of the world, and by the Clinton administration. This administration is saying that's going to end one way or the other. And everybody is all upset about this 
declaration of unilateralism. This is what drives the world. Unless you have that, unless you have that willingness to act alone precisely, as the previous President Bush made clear in August of 1990, you don't get the rest of the world rallying. American unilateralism is what drives the world, so said Charles Krauthammer on Late Night Live 2002. Well, if Charles were with us today, I'd ask him whether we're now witnessing the end of the unipolar world that he so unashamedly championed for so long. Good and honest journalism has lost one of its great practitioners. That's how the Wall Street Journal remembered Krauthammer this week. A paper, by the way, that never even published him. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in again next week.